This is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education, and I wanted to give a quick introduction before we get into this exciting episode. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the hiring process of faculty in Adapted Physical Education programming and, and the importance of it to help serve our profession in the future. Uh, and I'm joined with Dr. Barry LeVay and Melissa Bittner from California State University, Long Beach. This, this is a two-parter, and the first part we're going to talk a little bit about hiring process, and in the second part, we're going to talk about the mentoring and the importance of it in our field. So in this podcast, we discuss the importance of veteran APE professionals being involved in the search process, as well as remaining on the faculty for a few years in order to mentor new faculty. Um, We share strategies and considerations for running these searches, and also kind of like what we're looking for for in, in searches sometimes too. So Most importantly, we believe replacing retired AP faculty positions and strong mentoring of junior faculty are two topics that are often not discussed but have strong ramifications to preserving the APE profession. While all what's new in adaptive physical education listeners will find this podcast of interest, higher ed PhD AP candidates and junior faculty might find this podcast especially useful. With that said, I wanted to put out a quick plug just to say that my university, the University of New Hampshire, is hiring a tenure-track health and physical education position. So please get your applications in right away. With that, let's start. Hello, everyone. This is Scott McNamara of the What's New in Adaptive Physical Education, bringing you another awesome, exciting episode. I have two kind of reoccurring guests and even moderators, I might call them now, I have doctors uh, Melissa Bittner and Barry LeVay from California State University, Long Beach, and they both have been on the, I mean, do you guys even know how many times you've been on the show? A few times. I lost track. <laughs> yeah, we got to count them up. I, I, I'm going to, it might be close, close to 10 now, hmm. I would think. That's great. I might, it, it might be close. When are we getting that subsidy then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I make nearly like $60 a year on this. <laughs> great and yeah next conference you can buy us the beer yeah right yeah (laughs) so um i have you all here today and and to talk about something that uh you know i think dr levey has really kind of championed over the last few years and um is hiring and mentoring new ape faculty to continue our profession and uh help ape uh you know help our profession continue because right now I think there's this thing we're, that we're all experiencing in the field is the uh, silver tsunami is what I've heard it, although I got silver hair too, so I'm not going anywhere, but uh, it's the, uh, you know, that the boomers are, are kind of, um, you know, starting to retire. And obviously um, that's a lot of really, really strong people in the profession. And so then how do we continue to um, have these high quality programs and also mentor the people in there. And, you know, and Melissa and I are both people that have really, I think, benefited from Dr. LeVay's mentorship over the years. So, um, you know, with that, we're going to kind of break up the discussion and talk first about running an effective search to hire a strong faculty member in APE. And then I think we're going to talk a little bit more about mentoring. Um, and, and with that, uh, you know, Dr. LeVay, again, you know, you're the one that really pushed this podcast and really, I think it's a really important topic. So 
please feel free to kind of jump in and out with the moderation too, mm-hmm. because I think you can lead a lot of this discussion, but um, yeah, let's discuss, you know, or real quick, do we need any, do I need to, to do a quick kind of uh, who are you guys? Because no, it's fine. We'll just jump right into it. You guys are yeah. basically yeah, co-hosts now. Sure. Um, yeah. So um, I, I'll just say, Melissa, uh, you've been at, we, we went to TWU together and California State Long Beach, you've been there for what, six years? Five. I am up for oh, tenure and promotion next year. So awesome. And- scary whirlwind. And LaVey, you retired two years ago? Yeah, 20, uh, August 20. Yes, and the I was beginning there of the pandemic. For, yeah, right. Yes. And, um, and you are, you know, you have what, how, you worked at California State for 30 years? 33 years. And then I was at Fort Hayes State for four years before that and in the public mm-hmm. schools. Basically, no, you're like, your your trading cards. I have your, uh, there your you stats go. on there. <laughs> your citations and your your, yeah um so with that i think um i think you all you know you could both talk quite a bit about these experiences of being hired hiring new faculty and then the mentorship which i think is a really important aspect in our field sure continue this level of um you know uh, of effectiveness that we've had so let's discuss why you felt like it was important to be involved in the search process and the hiring process of your APE replacement, Barry. Sure. So, Scott, thanks again for, you know, for introducing us and for getting us on the podcast. I think this is a really important topic. Um, so very early in my career, like I think I was in my third or fourth year, Hollis Fate, who was a real giant in the field of adaptive PE, uh, we have an award through the consortium through him. He wrote one of the first textbooks and he had this incredible program at the University of uh, Connecticut and it had um, trained quite a few teach, uh, people to go on, and, you know, they got their PhDs in adaptive P. He retired and they didn't fill his position. And I was just a young, naive faculty member. And this just blew my mind. I said, what do you mean you're not? They're not going to fill his position and they're going to um, fill it with a, a different uh, specialty area. And so that was a real rude awakening for me. And over the years, I watched as some people retired and their positions weren't filled. Or if if it was filled, it would be two or three years after they retired. I saw some programs really take a hit, because, uh, strong programs over the years. Uh, and today, with the financial challenges that we have, and because adaptive P is such a, a specialized area, administrators usually look at how many people uh, are in your class, as opposed to um, wh- what are you doing for the profession or what are you doing for you know community service, th- those types of things. So I-, I wanted to make sure that I put a plan in place, not only for CSUAP program, so we remain viable. But to me, the bottom line is that you've, it's really important to have AP higher ed people around the country. And when we lose positions, it really hurts our profession. I mean, that's, that's obvious, but let me give you one example. When, when I was involved on the steering committee for APENS, uh, we were sitting in a room, there were six of us that really were connected in adaptive PE. And we were trying to identify two or three people in every state that we could go to 
and talk to, to about eight pens and get them to promote it in their state. And, you know, it was easy for some states. And then we'd get to some states like Idaho, South Dakota, and we'd go, who are we going to, who should we ask? And those, uh, I've talked with Garth Timerson about this just recently, because when we get questions um, from the profession, a lot of times through the consortium, it's from uh, AP teachers in states where uh, they don't have an AP higher ed person. And the education department does all kinds of things because there isn't an AP person there to really um, connect with that, that de you know, department of education. So I think that's why it was so important. And then obviously what you said earlier, Scott, about the silver tsunami, we, we uh, a lot of the people that recently retired, we were all products of 94-142 professional development money. We, we started in the early 80s in higher ed and, and uh, just a lot of us are now retiring. And so we need to fill those positions. So I think that's, that's real, uh, real critical. So, you know, for the lifeblood of our profession, basically. And that's why I wanted to do this podcast and talk about this. Yeah. Because I think it's something we don't always talk about or consider. No, I think you, there's a ton of good points in there and, you know, um, that, that we have to continue the, this. And when often we lose a, a position, it's just gone forever. Um, right. There's not new APE positions popping up everywhere. They, every once in a while that does happen. Mm -hmm. um, and then your points about why it's so important. You know, my experience in Iowa, um, I was kind of the, like the lone person in Iowa as an APE. There, Andy Pitchford, I should acknowledge too, is at Iowa State, mm -hmm. but he's, you know, still, he's like a little more motor development guy and stuff like that too. So I, I um, there was, I, I got a lot of people that contacted me in Iowa about a variety of things with APE. Um, and I often got told things like, you know, it's, a desert here with APE, right. like, you know, we're happy to ha have somebody that actually has his expertise. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I, I definitely can see that because, you know, people would tell me about someone 15 years ago, that was the last person that was really active in APE. So, sure. you know, that, that does happen. Um, and we need these mm -hmm. positions to continue. But I think yeah. one thing that Barry will outline that's imperative is that faculty need to consider pushing and probing for an APE replacement before they retire. And yeah. that's what Barry really did. He you know, jumped and started having those conversations with administration. And that's a, a lot of what the discussion today will be about is how, go, how to go about doing that and why it's so important to do that. So we don't lose these APE lines because once they're lost, they're a lot harder to get initiated again. Yeah. So, so let's, yeah, let's jump into that because it's a really like multifaceted complex question uh, about trying to get a, a search before you retire. Um, first of all, even it, it's complex because when you're trying to get a, um, a position, you have to go through your department, your college, your college dean, uh, the college dean has to run it by the associate, you know, VP. Um, your department has to okay it. So that requires an okay from a number of people. Uh, the cost, you know, everybody, when you say AP, they look at it, that's a specialized program. You're not going to have as many students as, say, exercise science. 
Um, some people are have, for example, at Long Beach State, and we'll, we'll get into this, that their um, idea was we don't hire somebody until the, that person fully retires or they're gone. And that's, that's sort of uh, the policy in a lot of places. Um, they're afraid maybe the person isn't going to retire. They're going to say they're going to retire. They're going to hire a person. And the idea of having more than one AP person um, is, you know, is, is complex. And, and then you have a number of faculty sometimes that maybe they don't decide to retire until the last minute. And, you know, and, and that's okay. But um, so the bottom line, you know, is it's a huge commitment from a lot of people. And it's, it's not always uh your call you know as far as doing it so it takes it takes a lot of work to get this uh to happen and i think that's that's pretty much you know one of the bottom lines is that it's complex that way you know before we get so, into the next yeah, piece, go ahead i, yeah. I just i because i think this is important for the listeners especially if they're not you know university folk but even if they're right. graduate students or just even knowing i think a little bit about some of this stuff is the kind of like you, you kind of mentioned the numbers game too. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's so vital from where I, you know, I didn't really realize how much, you know, and, and right now there's a little bit of a downturn in higher ed in general, um, where, mm -hmm. where certain places um, maybe aren't getting hit as hard, but especially like Midwest regions. And I think the South, um, you know, the college enrollment is really down right now. So trying to advocate for replacements of faculty and stuff like that is such a big thing. So, you know, maybe you can just briefly talk a little bit about yeah. how important that kind of selling your program and selling, right. they need to know that you have students. Yeah. Come in. Right. And so that, that's uh, another thing is that, you know, the bottom line, I learned, like, I was pretty naive at first. I said, well, you know, AP is important and, and we've got to include children with disabilities, but administrators, you know, it's almost like, this is putting students in seats is our assembly line. That's our assembly line. And so that's what administrators know, um, you know, is that bottom line to get funded and, and et cetera. And so you have to be constantly selling your program, educating administrators about what you do, educating them about how you provide it, not only uh, professional development, but also community services is, is important. And, and, and just talking about your alumni and who they are and what they're doing out there um, and the impact they're gonna have uh, in the public schools. But this is the point you're making, Scott, is a huge problem for not only Adaptive P, but Pete. And that's why Pete and AP, I, I feel like sometimes we work in silos and we really need to work together, you know? And so we're, we're seeing this and so, that's why it's so important to educate your administration and take the, it takes time, but to go in there and meet with your, your chair, get your chair to, to support you, get your dean to support you, get your dean to know what you do. Yeah. Uh, whenever you publish something or you do some community service or, you know, use social media, but send it to your dean, send it to your department chair. Um, a lot of faculty are just, you know, they get wrapped up in doing their scholarship and and yeah. they're in there on their computer and you got to sell your program. It's really critical. It's vital. And you got to be a good teacher so that you're yeah, and, and are, are telling people that, you know, that right. want to do it. So, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, 
And this next question, you know, what, what should faculty who are getting close to retiring do to assure that they're going to get involved in the search? Yeah. So, you know, I can talk from my experience, but also in a general terms, and, and then Melissa can jump in. But, um, you know, what I was fortunate is that we have a thing called FERP, and some universities around the country have this faculty early retirement plan, which is a uh, uh, you can take up to five years, you, you officially retire, but, and then you teach half your load. And although you're officially retired, you're still part of the faculty. And before uh, I declared FERP, you know, I, I told my faculty in a department meeting that I was gonna retire and it was important we hire somebody. And they just all started laughing. They just thought that I would just stay there forever. And they would just, one day I dropped dead and they'd bury me under the kinesiology building, I guess, I, I don't know. And so once I, I would have probably not um, FERPed as early as I did, but I realized like, unless I FERP, they don't think I'm serious about this. So once I FERP, then my plan was, five-year plan was first year, get the position. And I'd have to go to my dean because this was unprecedented. Like they, they didn't hire somebody before you would were done with FERP. Uh, and I had to hustle for that position through the department, through the college, you know, get it okay by the department, get it okay by the chair, get it okay by the college dean. And so that took a year. Then you, the second year, you got to run the search. All right. And I wanted to make sure that I was the chair of the search. And I wanted to make sure that our peak coordinator, Aaron Williams, was on the search. I think it's really critical you get somebody from Pete to be on that search as well. But you also get somebody that's outside, like a special, like we had somebody from exercise science, you know, also on our search. So that's year two. So now you don't even, you're talking like the third year is only, if everything goes correctly, then you finally have somebody on campus. It's a three year thing. And I felt like, okay, I could have these next three years where I could work with Melissa. And by the time the third year was over, a couple of things is she would know everything about the program. It wasn't so much about, you know, the teaching was important, the scholarship was important, but um, there's a lot of things about California and advising and adaptive PE and CTC that are, that are complex that Melissa can talk a little bit about. Um, but also, that by the time I was gone, she'd been involved in every aspect of it. And that we'll can get into that in the mentoring. But, but the other thing was um, she'd be up for her third year review by then. And so she'd be, you know, I could be helping her and she'd be in good shape, you know, for her third year review by then. And so that, that kind of was my plan. But I think the first two things are, are critical and that, too often somebody's running the search, like if you've retired and you're gone, somebody's running the search that doesn't know much about adaptive P. The summer um, that I got, the summer before we ran the search, I called every PhD program in the country that was strong in adaptive P and asked them who were their PhD candidates that were gonna be graduating that year and kind of had a feel, you know, it's a small community, you know everybody and I can call people and they're gonna be straight with me about who's, you know, who their stronger students are. You know, a, a person outside the field isn't gonna know that. So I, I, I say that's what's, what's really uh, 
critical is those first two years, you know? And even if you can't, um, if you have to retire, the policies, we're not gonna hire somebody. If you're still around, you could still, you know, talk to them and, and communicate with them, you know, and mentor them. And I just made this argument with our dean, how I showed her how complex our program was, you know, with the practicums and the T. I said, it's not just teaching. And we have three on-campus practicums. We have 40 sites all over Southern California, that type of thing. And that's what I think something that Barry did that more programs really need to consider is he had that, um, you know, the vision to bring someone in and the ability to train them for three years, that rarely happens in adaptive PE, but it was immensely helpful, particularly because here at Long Beach State, like we have three service learning programs and sure, previously I had done um, service learning programs, but they're slightly different here. And then to manage three of them, uh, you know, that, that's complicated and learning how to do all that. So that was incredibly helpful. Uh, I also felt that having Barry lead, you know, from the, the chair of that search committee, you know, he had 30 years to develop his vision for the program. And he had a lot of insight on what it would take to do well in this program. Because I think that's something important too that we haven't discussed is there were probably a lot of candidates or at least a handful of candidates that might've been better than me um, for this position, potentially like from a, a research standpoint, but Barry really knew the service aspects and the teaching aspects that went into a program like Long Beach State. Um, and, and that's something to consider as well, because sometimes administrators are just counting like publications and they're like, oh, this person has the most publications They're the That's who we want to bring in. And that's not always true at every university. And I think that that's something Barry really recognized that our university has a strong service component. We have a very strong teaching component and looked for a candidate um, that would do well in those things. Uh, and in addition with our service learning programs, like these programs have been on our university for over 50 years. And if I didn't receive training on how to do those, like the ball easily could have been dropped at a lot of universities, those things happen, that someone has been there for a very long time, they retire, the new person comes in and maybe has a, a different vision or doesn't know how to do a service learning program. And so those you know, long-standing traditions then get stopped. And that's certainly something that the you know, Long Beach State bought into in allowing Barry to essentially train me for three years. Um, Barry um, was, oh, go ahead, Barry. Well, Melissa brings up a really good point about when you're running a search, like when I was, you know, I've been involved in like five searches, chaired a few, uh, you know, and early in my career, like somebody said, uh, who you want to hire? And I hear this from young faculty all the time. We want to hire the best person. Well, what does that mean? You know, how do you define best person? You need to hire somebody that's a good match with your university. Long Beach State, like is a second tier university. We, we uh, believe scholarship is important, but, the, but we really, uh, teaching is our bread and butter and you teach 12 units and that's not semester, that's, uh, that's not a year, that's every semester, that's 24 units. I've said that to some people who, who uh, put their, their name in and they go, that's a year, 12 units? I, no, no, that's a semester. So they really, need to be somebody that knows how to 
um, be teaching 12 units a semester and hustle and, and also do scholarship and do service learning. Uh, so are they a good match? Are they a match with the department? Are they, you know, some people, the best person could be somebody that I don't want to teach. I just want to do scholarship or they're a diva or they just have a, a personality that, uh, that they need to be um, a high character person. They need to be, you know, these are all kind of intangibles that are hard to define. And, and based on, you know, I've been involved in higher ed for over 30 years. And so I can kind of talk to somebody and, and, and they got to get along with the peak department. They got to get along with, with the department. Are they a good match? It's not the best. It's, it's a good at the point that, that uh, it really bothers me sometimes when people just count up, you know, how many publications somebody has and says, well, this must be a really good faculty member. Yeah. Those are Barry real and I call these the, the things that don't show up on the stat line. Yeah, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, there's things like Marcus Smart does for the Boston Celtics that don't show up on the stat line. I just want to <laughs> yeah, make yeah. sure I got at least one <laughs> Celtic uh, reference before we move on. Good and bad, you know, man. Marcus Smart's okay. <laughs> right, I understand that. <laughs> anyway. So, so those, are, those, are easy, those are hard to define. The, the things that are easy to define is like, do they, are they a content expert? You know, did they come from a strong PhD program with a specialization in adaptive PE? For us, like if you don't have public school experience, we don't even wanna, you know, they're not considered. That's critical for us. We really value teaching at Long Beach State. You know, probably above scholarship. We think scholarship is important. We, un the, the person has to understand that their scholarship is mostly going to be very practical in nature and applied, and they're not going to have an army of PhD students helping them with their scholarship. We're, you know, we have a master's degree program. So that, that, those tangibles, like public school experience. One of the things I really liked about Melissa was she had taught 10 years at Monmouth College. So I like to say she knew how to do more with less. I think that's part of like teaching at Long Beach State is that you're not going to have an army of PhD students. Like I said, you're not going to, they're not going to throw money at you, that, that type of thing. And, and, and in this day and age, you really have to know how to sometimes do more with less. And, you know, the other thing is I've been involved in, in searches and I've been chaired our RTP is how do they present their application? And one tip I'd give to people who are out there listening and is your application organized and it's not boilerplate, like where it's just you're putting in your application to 15 places and it's all the same. You know, Melissa can talk a little bit about this, you know, and if your application is not organized and it's hard for somebody like myself who has 37 years of higher ed experience to follow it and understand it, you know, like what's it going to be like when they teach a class if they're not organized? And usually when I look at a person's vita, the first question I ask is, is it organized? And does this person have the potential to get tenure? That's the first question I ask when I look at a, a, a vita, you know. But even though Melissa was considered a PhD student, she had taught 10 years at a small college and also in the public school. So, so that was a unique quality. You know, she knew how to do more with less. Absolutely. Yeah, we luckily had the, the opportunity here to run a search at Long Beach State. And this is a, maybe another good tip. I know that Chico State currently has an AP opening and kind of took a similar approach with a 
a split PEAT slash APE position. Uh, we ran ours half elementary PE, half APE. And that was how I, uh, we like to jokingly refer that we had to hire two people to replace Barry uh, because we got someone else um, as well in with AP expertise. We were able to bring in Dr. Amanda Young. And so I've also had the opportunity of chairing a search and that's certainly a very eye-opening experience. But here are a few tips for those who might be applying for a new position. Number one, look at the position description and write to it. Like for example, ours was a split elementary PE, adaptive PE position. And so look at that position description and kind of like what Barry mentioned, don't do the, the boilerplate thing, um, but specifically look at the position you're applying to. Uh, especially when you get into the, the round of phone interviews or face-to-face -face interviews, biggest tip is to be memorable. And I try to tell my pre-service students this as well, because we prepare them a lot for that APE interview to secure a job in a public school, is be memorable. Don't just say, oh yeah, I use universal design for learning. You know, that's, that's very vague. But instead, maybe give a specific example of, oh, here is a um, yes. video that I had to create of a, a do-it-yourself assignment. I created, you know, a, a tic-tac-toe beanbag uh, and, you know, here's the video and you can even pull out an iPad and show them the video that you created using universal design for learning. So you really want to give specifics. You really want to um, provide visuals when possible. So we encourage students to, you know, bring lesson plans or bring an iPad. Uh, on interviews and even for higher ed faculty, you could certainly do the same thing and bring in an iPad and show an example of a, a lesson plan or syllabus that you've uh, created. Another very big tip is know something about the university. I think this is really important. Um, one, one example that I think really resonated with my search committee, we were just having kind of that casual lunch and it was brought up, you know, oh, some things to do in the area. And I brought up, oh, you know, I've got a, a young daughter. I, I want to check out Mother's Beach. You know, that's a small little beach area. And I, I think like the committee said, oh, you know, she can see herself here. She's done a little research to no. know some things that are in the area. And I think that's really vital when you're looking uh, to interview in a position. Another tip, know what courses are offered at the university. Look at the course list, familiarize yourself with that know the research interests of the people who are on your interview committee. We are higher ed nerds and can often talk at nauseum about our research interests. And so know the research interests of the people on the hiring committee. And you can always, you know, throw them a bone and say, oh, maybe we could collaborate on X, Y, or Z, or I've read your article on, you know, on this. And that's sure to, to always uh, appease. <laughs> you know, now that we're getting into this conversation, I'm definitely seeing that. I think a lot of younger professionals could, are, I hope, listen to this podcast because I think this is really giving them some really great tips. I mean, one of the, I think Barry might even told me this, but like the best way if, you know, conferences and stuff can be awkward sometimes when you're in that like new PhD like world and you're meeting all these people and whatever. And the best way is to like really if you're talking, like if I'm just starting my PhD and I meet Barry LeVay and, you know, he's got all these textbooks and he's this big guy in the field, best thing to do is say, what's your research area? And then just let them talk for 30 minutes and, well. <laughs> and they, they're going to be really happy with you after that. After like you let a PhD, uh, you know, professor um, just talk about their research for 30 minutes at sure. you. 
they'll be happy. <laughs> so that's always, I, I think y'all have some excellent tips and, and you guys have been, you know, I know we're going to talk about mentoring in a second. And I think one of the things though, that you talked about, I just want to highlight, because I think it's so important is that, you know, this three-year overlap that you had is, is incredible. And I really do think it's, a, it's a rarity in a way. And, and it's going to be in right now with this kind of, I think a little bit of a downturn in, in higher ed, you know, although our university has a 10% increase in applications this year so far. So we're very happy with that. So hopefully that's writing itself already, but is this not just the mentoring and like you said, with teaching stuff, but I think with universities, I sometimes look at them like a city where they have so many resources, it can be overwhelming. And, and honestly, there's so much institutional knowledge um, that, that Barry, I'm sure provided you of, you know, you have a question, go to this place, go to this place, talk to this person, because that to me becomes when you transition to different universities, it becomes one of the hardest things to navigate is the amount of resources available to you. And then universities seem to be really, I I don't know, or it was just so much overwhelming that they often aren't really good at actually giving you a pamphlet on where to go Mm -hmm. for your specific needs. And so that, I think that's so valuable of having someone like Barry. Yeah, yeah you know. it was like a Rolodex of knowledge. Oh, you need yeah. to talk to parking for ASAP? Go talk here. We need to start yeah, organize be. aquatics for uh, Camp Nugget this summer. We need to go talk here. Um, and, and yeah, exactly. That was uh, yeah. a huge time saver and, you know, kind of just pointing you in the right direction with who to talk to and almost a timeline of when to get these things initiated in order to do our service learning programs. Um, one of the things I like to say is that I can tell her in one conversation what would have taken her 15 emails to figure out, you know. Uh, the other thing is give me an example, Melissa, about how I kept pushing you to go to those socials and then you connected with speech and language, you know, because you would have just stayed in your office and and worked on articles, right? So share Absolutely. that. I, <laughs> no, it's so, and, and that's very, <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, it, it's so true that, a lot of faculty need that nudge to go be social. And our um, college put on these meet the department nights because again, we're a very large college, College of Health and Human Services. And it happened to be a speech language and they had another new faculty member there, uh, Belinda Doherty in speech language. And Barry's like, she also researches autism. You need to go talk to her because again, at the, I don't know, initial convocation at the beginning of the year, they talk about the new faculty and Barry recognized that she, you know, had a similar research line. And so he made me go talk to her and I did, and it's, it had been fantastic. And we did some research together um, a couple summers ago at Camp Nugget, collected some data, you know, got like two publications, uh, two or three presentations, a a couple grants for like students to help out with summer research. yeah, presentations, podcasts, I mean, you name it, we kind of really um, did it up and have continued to, you know, be great research partners and kind of created a, a nice collaborative line with what we do in APE and how to incorporate speech into what we do. And that was all thanks to Barry, because he pushed me to go be social when I 100% would not have done something like that on my own. Yeah, that, that whole idea of, you know, connecting with people and that it's a city, you know, and there, you know, I've been there 37 years and there's still people I've never connected with, you know, uh, 
but that that's important and uh the, uh, that senior faculty can do that can you know so I, I made it a point anytime we went somewhere it says come on Melissa come with me it's a lot harder now with the COVID with, with yeah. COVID-19 and the pandemic and uh, so that's a challenge. Um, One thing you know, I did th this this year as a new faculty is I actually I asked every faculty member to have lunch with me um, mm -hmm. it didn't always happen and I tried to do it before I had my second child because then I sure. I said, I can't do that stuff anymore. But uh, yeah, I think that was really vital of just, you know, just yeah, even great to tip. people too, because that's another, especially when you're moving with a family and stuff, it's become so much vital to like find out the resources and stuff like that. I, I'm going to put a quick plug in. And then I want to also, I want to talk more about these tips because I think these tips are gold. Um, I just want to also let people know that I'm not chairing, but I'm on a search committee and we're going to be releasing a health and physical education position at the University of New Hampshire next week. So um, that's another. So I'm going to be I'm listening in very, very like, you know, thinking about this stuff, too. So we're excited to, to have that, too. So with that, um, when people are applying to these positions, um, what are the tips that that we can share about the application and what the candidate should look for in the university and APE program or PE program. Yeah, so, so I think uh, the other point that <clears throat> there's a lot of challenges with this application, uh, you know, and, and, and we, we've talked about a lot of those, but, you know, the critical thing about being organized. But I, I think the other thing is it's challenging for the search committee. And the point that Melissa made about that's why I think Pete and Adaptive P in the future really need to work together to run searches and get a slash APE slash Pete person or, or a combo type of position, you know, based on your question, Scott, hey, you know, because of what's going on. The other thing about searches is, as Melissa realized, it was a real eye opener for her running that search is that you've got a real, it's a real time commitment and it can blow up at any time because you you have this search protocol that you have to follow and you have to you know there are a lot of people that that you have to make sure that they um like diversity like the the university has a diversity uh <clears throat> program and and they have you know the search protocol you have to follow that search protocol which at times was hard for me man i understand i was hired um you know, over 30 years ago at the National Layford Conference, Shape Conference in a bar over beers, you know? And so it's not like that today when, when somebody says, hey, we have to have the same number of minutes that we interview each person and we have to ask them the same questions, you know? And, and I understand that it's, it's important to, to follow that search protocol, but, but I think time commitment, it's almost like a full-time job running the search because now uh, you have to answer all these questions. You have to put all these protocols together, you know, get them passed before you can move on to the next. Melissa, what did, what did you want to say? Cause you just, this is fresh in your mind. You just did this last year. I was really shocked with the amount of paperwork <laughs> that there were rubrics for everything. Rubrics for scoring the phone interviews, rubrics for the diversity statements, CVs, cover letters. I mean, there was a rubric for the rubric. I, mean, I was really surprised at the amount of paperwork that it took. But yeah, time commitment yeah. was was huge. Um, 
sometimes you are sometimes you're at the mercy of others decisions because it's not just your committee as much as you and the other people on your committee think it's your decision like it's it's really not that there's it's multifaceted that there's um certainly the committee but there's also administrators the department the college dean um we also had staff involved with the equity and diversity panel and they were involved very much in what we did uh, in looking at diversity statements, et cetera. So yeah, that's something too that sort of surprised me a little bit as well, is just that how many people were involved, how much paperwork, how big of a time commitment. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was very much a learning process. So, so another tip is that, you know, you're going to bring, uh, at our place, you, you could bring three people on campus for interviews and <clears throat> the dean could, you know, decide to hire any one of those people, even though you put a certain name forward. So when you write it up, it's really important. You write up who do you really want and why and why that's important and how they match with the department and maybe even go to the dean and talk to the dean about this. The one other thing vital is tip. I would say yeah. that is incredibly important. Do not bring anyone onto campus who you don't feel comfortable hiring. Don't do right. that because any of those individuals would be eligible to hire since you brought them on campus. So if they don't make the cut, do not bring them. And some people get desperate. You know, they go, okay, let's bring this person on. And I go, do, do we really want to hire this person? And they get hired. And now you've got somebody for 20 years that you really didn't want. That's the thing you got to think about is that, this is this could potentially be a 30 year decision. This could be a 20 year decision. All right. And, and so um, and do your homework before. I'm always kind of shocked at how people don't call and talk to the PhDs, you know, mentor, you know, and say, hey, what's their work style like? What's their what are they like? You know, that type of thing. And just call them up. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that. you can do that very well. Maybe you can't do ago, that anymore. <laughs> out of bar you could do that you cannot do there's definitely protocol now a lot of rules right a lot i i believe you can still like you can still if they put down their uh references you can call their references yeah for sure but yeah no there's there is a bunch of rules and i know like i have to go through some whatever like hr stuff now of like you know, like even uh, when you like, I know a big one is like when we bring someone on campus and we go have food, like I can't ask them and be like, I, I can tell them I have kids, but I can't be like, you know, do you have children? Um, and those types sure. of personal things, too. So there's a, a lot of rules around there, too, that you yeah. have to be careful to tread. But, I, you know, I, I know we're going to transition in a moment to, to the mentoring piece, um, you know. I want to get back to one one point that you made in this this part of the conversation because I do think your situation was really unique, especially in the kind of downturn or whatever that we're experiencing at the moment in higher mm -hmm. ed of, of having a three year overlap. Um, you know, advice to a senior faculty member who is in the in the process of retiring or you know knows that they're going to retire in the suit like soon, like that last year for us uh, at the University of New Hampshire, they bought out a bunch of faculty in like right. March or April um, because it was a lot cheaper for them. And then that positions opened up because of that. Right. So yeah, that um, happens. Yes. And I think that does happen, you know, and so 
you know, if you don't have that time and you still want to have the continuation of, of a strong program, what can the faculty do um, aside from just advocate that they are part of the search committee to make sure that right. there's some type of continuation? Uh, one of the things that I, that you could do is you could write certain things down and give it to that new faculty member. Like for example, when we ran uh, our summer program, Camp Nugget, we bring 60 kids on campus and we um, have it for a month. That's a, that's a big time commitment. And eventually Melissa's gonna run this program, but I had it all written down. First you do this, then you do this. And I remember when I handed it, when I sent it over to email, you don't hand things to people anymore. You email them to them, right, Melissa? And so I, you know, the thing was probably like 10 pages of things of, to, of a, to do, a 10 page to-do list, you know, which is kind of overwhelming and stuff. But uh, that's what I would say that let's say, your point, Scott, is that try to write some things down. Like I never, one of the big things, the first, one of the first things I tried to tell Melissa is, is you're never going to hear me say that's not the way we do it at Cal State Long Beach. <laughs> All right. Is I, I tried to say um, if she wanted to try something, I might give her the pros and cons of what's positive about doing that and what might be a challenge for her to do that. But there were times when there were some things she talked about that, you know, maybe I tried that 20 years ago, but may, it's a different time. Maybe it'll work now, you know, that, that type of thing. So I think, you know, you, you write some things down and for that transition, that's what I, and say, this is, here's what you need to do if you're going to run this on-campus practicum. You know, here's the people you need to call. Here's the phone numbers. Here's this, here's that, you know, this is pretty yeah. detailed. That I, takes I think... a time commitment from that, that, senior faculty member you know some senior yeah. faculty members they're burned out you know maybe or they just i just want to get out of here i need to retire <laughs> i mean and, and it's their right i mean they are retiring yes, right it is like i mean barry not everyone's like you or you're still no but know, I, but i i really kind of i kind of felt like you know the i had an obligation because the program was is 50 years old i mean it has a long rich legacy dating back to dan arnheim in the mid-60s and the other thing from a professional, from the profession standpoint, if Long Beach State didn't have an AP program, we're talking about 50% of the state, we credential and adapt to PE. That's a huge problem now for our state if, if we don't have a program, okay? Yeah. And so this has ramifications for a lot of things. And, and so it's important for Melissa to understand how to credential these people and how to navigate through the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing and those types of things, um, because that has ramifications for the state, for national. And because the most important thing I think we can do is why are we doing this? We're doing this to train teachers to go out there into public schools and work with kids with disabilities. That's my philo you know, philosophy. And so why am I doing this if I'm not, you know, and so it, it breaks my heart when I see programs that real strong programs that just end, you know, yeah. I understand nothing endures but change and things end, but at the same time, here was a really great program. And now it's, you know, people make programs. That's, you know, that's critical. You know, I live by that motto. It's people who make programs. So we have to continue to have right. high quality people. So with that, why don't we transition to the mentoring conversation? Mm -hmm.